Good morning and welcome to Catalyst. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here and I want to welcome everybody who's joining us in person and online, especially if this is your first time here with us. Uh, I want to invite you back tonight. Um, if you are visiting and, you, and Catalyst wants to, uh, you want to be part of Catalyst Christian Church, we're having a class called Starting Point tonight. Starts at 6 o'clock. It'll be done by about 8, 8.15. And it's all about our church. We want everyone to go through this, get everyone on the same page. Uh, we will, uh, j- if, if you just let me know, come see me after church today. Uh, I am teaching it. I would love to invite you back to that. It's tonight, downstairs at 6 o'clock, called Starting Point. Hope, hope you guys can make it. If you want to know more about Catalyst, you want to join, make this church home. This is what it's all about. All right, so we're continuing in our series called Fighting the Culture War. What is the Christian to do? And last week we talked about uh, the spirit of the age. And this week we're talking about something that I've never preached on before. I have never, ever even attempted to preach on this before. Uh, But I've been getting more and more questions about this. This is something that that the church needs to have a response to. Christians need to have a response to. And uh, and so I just basically called it the gospel and gun ownership. I have never preached on this before. The main thing is when power is out of balance, there is violence. When power is in balance, there is peace. Uh, I've preached about this a couple of times. Being up in Massachusetts three weeks ago was a very moving experience for me. Um, seeing where our country began, heading out of Boston to Lexington and Concord, and seeing where the places where shopkeepers and, and carpenters and farmers and pastors, some pastors stood their ground and uh, uh, returned fire against professional soldiers was, was really something. The first shots of the American Revolution were uh, a result of a British detachment leaving Boston uh, to go to Concord, which, which was uh, another town in Massachusetts, um, to confiscate firearms and powder and to uh, arrest Samuel Adams and John Hancock, but primarily to confiscate firearms. That is what our revolution started over. And the Americans said, no, we're, you know, we're not going to let you do that. The issue of private gun ownership, you guys, has been at the heart of America since its beginning. Without private gun ownership, we wouldn't have a country. Um, and the Second Amendment is to the Constitution and ensured that the Americans would never be denied the right to own firearms. Now, like I said, I've never preached on this before. Um, uh, quite honestly, I didn't think it was necessary. I didn't think it was something that the church should really address. Uh, but since 2020, gun ownership has surged in America 39%. That equals hundreds of millions of guns in our nation. Um, the question is, what is a Christian to do? Well, I was approached by a former student several years ago. Um, one of the joys about being a youth minister, a former youth minister, is that you get to talk to former students who, who you, you know, you got to know them as teenagers and they go away and, 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 and uh, um, they're, they're, they come back and loudly proclaim that everything they learned from age zero to 18 is wrong and everyone older than them is, that sat in those same classrooms is dumb. You know, yeah, I, I deal with that. It was great. But I had posted on Facebook a picture of my first deer. I'd gotten my first deer, thanks to Greg Willems helping me out. Thanks, Greg. Um, and I, like hunters do, you pose with the deer and your rifle. And uh, the former student laid into me for, for owning a rifle. Uh, Christians shouldn't be violent. Jesus wouldn't own a rifle. And I mean, the same argument has been around for a long time. The question was, is he correct? Was he correct? Uh, this is, uh, by the way, this is something the church and Christians have been debating since the church began, long before the founding of America. In my research, I found the earliest writings of this topic uh, were, were over Christians joining the Roman army in the year 173 A.D. 
Okay, I found that. These, like I said, the writer suggests that a debate had been going on for a while. That, that, and the same arguments were being made, that, that Christians were people of peace and should not take up weapons of war. And other people say, no, we have to defend ourselves and our country and, and, and everything. It was the same thing. This has been going on for 1,900 years, you guys. So we're not going to solve something that's been going on for 1,900 years in 30 minutes. But what I do want to do is that I want to provide a biblical framework for understanding this part of the culture war because people, quite honestly, are divided on this. So the question I I ask, was the former student right? He made three arguments um, against Christians owning firearms. And I, I will talk about the argument number one was this, is that Jesus said to love enemies and to pray for those that persecute you. How can you, he said, how can you love them and shoot them at the same time? That's a good question. That's a very good question. And he, he used Matthew 5, 44. said, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. That's, that's, uh, that's, a, that's word of God right there. And so uh, my response was this, was that the Bible allows for violence in limited cases, such as self-defense. And Jesus did not have a problem with his disciples being armed. And to that, I, I showed him in John 18, 10, where Jesus was being, had been arrested, was being arrested, uh, Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And, and, people, and, and he said, well, how do you know that Jesus knew he had a sword? I said, because a few verses earlier, he had told him to sell his cloak and buy a sword. You can look at it in Luke chapter uh, 22, verse 36. Um, but a few verses later, to all the gun toters and the gun, and the gun worshipers out there. At this, uh, right after Simon Peter did this, Jesus said, put it away. He said, shall I not drink the cup that God has given me? In other words, this is not the right time. This is not the right place. I have a purpose, and you're getting in the way of my purpose. However, that, that being said, um, if, I, if violence was never okay, Jesus would have told Peter never to carry a sword. Never. But he didn't. Jesus had no problem with his followers being armed with the weapons of the day and the time. I've heard people say that this is because they traveled long distances and they needed to defend themselves against wild animals. To that, um, I I would say this. They're far more likely to be attacked by bandits and thieves than they were wild animals, as the parable of the Good Samaritan shows. Okay? Now we can be confident that Peter and the other disciples carried swords and the weapons of the day to defend themselves against people. Bandits, thieves. That's who was... uh, uh, the threat. I told the student the plain simple fact is Jesus didn't seem to mind his disciples being armed. He went to the second argument and said this, the Ten Commandments says you should not kill. Uh, Exodus 20 verse 13 says you shall not murder. My, second, my, my response to that is this, that there's a significant, significant difference between thou shall not kill and thou shall not commit murder. Exodus 21, the chapter right after where we find the Ten Commandments, Exodus 21 was basically a list of things that if you did, they would kill you. Okay, my favorite one is if you talk back or curse your parents. That's my favorite one. You know, in biblical times, if you talk back or you cursed your parents, they killed you for that. All the parents were like, yeah. I'm going to put that one up there. Yeah, that's great. No, um, uh, it, it, thou shalt not kill is a bad translation. That's not what it says. Okay, Ten Commandments say you shall not commit murder. Now, murder is a premeditated plot against someone where you are the aggressor. That's what murder is, where you are the aggressor, where, where you plan and premeditate and take a life, okay? No sane person would think that self-defense and murder are the same things. Our legal system says they're completely different. So does the Bible, 
okay? Then he went on to argue number three, and this is probably his best one. This is the one that I wrestle with the most. Said this, owning a farm shows you don't trust God to protect you. That is a very, very, very valid criticism that the church must address, all right? Psalm 20, verse seven, he, he quoted this, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. In other words, he, he's saying that, that it's foolish to trust in chariots and horses. Those were weapons of war. Those were the tanks of the time. Those were the, the weapons of the time. It's foolish to do that because we put our trust in God. And like I said, it's probably his best argument. Where is the trust in God if you're a Christian gun owner? To which I responded this. I said, it's not a lack of trust to acknowledge that we live in a fallen world where sin abounds and evil is present. All right, 1 John 5, 19 says this. We know that we are children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. The people who make this argument still get vaccinated, lock their doors at night, have health, home, and car insurance. Okay, does that show a lack of trust in God? Or is it simple acknowledgement that we live in a fallen world where sin abounds and evil is present? All right? And if people are victims of a crime, a bad guy with a gun, the first thing they do is call a good guy with a gun. All right? I told them that gun ownership to me is an acknowledgement of what the Bible uh, tells us in Genesis 3 that we live in a fallen world. Uh, it is acknowledgement of what I call a biblical worldview. Right? God tells us there's no guarantee against evil. Never in his word does he say that there's a guarantee against evil. Never. He says to expect it. Now, the Bible tells us that at some point in the future, some of us think the very near future, praise God, I hope it is, that he puts it all away, that he crushes evil under his feet, that he redeems all of creation. That is coming. That's in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. That point is coming. God has assured us of that, and we yearn for that. But a biblical worldview states that God created everything, and everything is good, and then we blew it. We sinned. Sin entered the world, and creation fell, allowing Satan to take a limited reign for a limited time over this world. And at the end, God redeems his creation, like I said, and puts evil underneath his foot. But that has not happened yet, so we are living in a Genesis 3 world. We are. So acting like God is in control, that he redeems creation, that he's already put evil under his feet is foolish and naive, at least in my view. And that denies what the Bible tells us. So I'm putting forth this proposition. I'd like for you to think about it and ponder it and reflect on it and, and, and come to your own conclusions. I'm putting forth this proposition. That private gun ownership among Christians is simply a sober acknowledgement that we live in a fallen world where evil exists and sin abounds. So I told my, my student this, that this is the goal. Peace. Peace is the goal. That is always the goal. It's always the goal, Okay. That is the peace, and it's achieved in two ways historically. Two ways that people live in peace. The first one is this, that peace, we trust in the goodness of people. We do, okay? I don't minimize this because we happen, praise God, we happen to live in a relatively low crime area. There are, there are not, we don't have people, we don't have gang wars and don't live in areas of the world ruled by warlords and, and, and everything like that, unlike many Christians, like many people, where every day could be your last. That's not the context we live in. Praise God. And it would be very easy to trust in the goodness of your neighbors, to mind their own business and live in peace. That, that's, quite honestly, that's been most of my life, honestly. I have never been the victim of violent crime. 
I, I haven't really been the victim of a serious crime since, my high, since I was in high school and my car got broken into, and that was in 1990. So I, I, am, I don't have brushes with crime very much. I've not had to defend myself um, uh, very much. I, so I don't minimize this option. However, it doesn't take much of that to, sh- to, to shatter that. Other people in this room and online are not as fortunate as I have been. There are people who have been victims of violent crime, who have had their homes broken into, their families threatened, and property destroyed or stolen. And this particular option does not accord with the, with the biblical worldview. Please understand that I prefer this option. I would love to trust in the goodness of people. I, don't, I want to live in peace. I would love to look at people and say, you're a person of character and you're a person I can trust. I would love this, and I think that's what everyone wants. If I had my choice, this is where I would live. This doesn't work in the world we live in, according to the biblical worldview. The second way that peace is achieved historically is this. You balance the power between all sides. When there's a balance of power. I noticed this concept early in high school. When I was a freshman, I went out for the soccer team. And uh, there was a senior who was older, bigger, uh, stronger, decided to make me his target. Uh, it was unfair. I was bullied. There's not one thing I could do about it. Uh, he, he was not only was he bigger and older, but he was in a position of authority. He had all the power. He was the high man on the totem pole, and I was the bottom. Three years later, though, when I was a senior, I ran into this guy again. I'd grown three inches and put on about 35 to 40 pounds. He was about two inches shorter than me and was not in very good shape at all. He avoided looking at me in the eyes, pretended not to see me. None of the mockery, none of the humiliation, none of the bullying, none of the pushing, none of the physical abuse. It was completely gone. Why? Was it because in those three years he'd become a a moral person? Uh, 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 that he had seen the light and had changed his life? Was, that be, was it because of his inherent goodness like we saw in option one? No, no, it wasn't. It was because power had shifted. And I learned in that moment that if I wanted peace in my life, if I didn't want to be a target, I would need to have at my disposal whatever, whatever things others had. Balance of power leads to peace. Because we cannot trust in the inherent goodness of people as much as we'd like to, that we therefore have to go with option two, to balance power. That's how we live in peace. And that's what gun ownership does. It balances power between people. All anti-bullying campaigns that disregard this will fail. I've seen anti-bullying campaigns. My kids have been in school. I've seen a whole bunch of them talking about be kind, be this kind of thing, everything. Don't fight back. None of those work. And this is why. Lieutenant Jeff Cooper, United States Marine Corps, said this. Violent crime is to be curbed. It is only the intended victim who can do it. The felon does not fear the police. He fears neither judge nor jury. Therefore, he must be taught to fear his victim. And we all know that's true. We all know that's true. So the goal is that we balance power so there'll be peace. We want to live in peace, we have to go with option two. Places where violence is most likely to happen, places where there's an imbalance of power. I'm a child of the 80s. All right, the 80s were awesome. But in the 80s, it was the waning years of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. Both of us had nukes. I remember the summit meetings between Reagan and Gorbachev where they were going to, where they were going to solve all the world's problems. I remember that because nuclear war was, was, was always a threat. Even though America and the USSR had weapons, we never fired them. Why? 
Was it because of the inherent goodness of our leaders, of people like Stalin and Khrushchev and Brezhnev? Were, were they great moral paragons? No. No, Stalin killed more than 40 million of his own people. No. Plain and simple, neither side launched because the other side could fire back and there would be mutually assured destruction because there was a balance of power. We lived in peace, uneasy peace, but peace. Let's contrast that with Germany and Poland in 1939. The German army called the Wehrmacht was the finest fighting force in the world. They had panzer tanks, automatic weapons. The Polish side, they had the finest cavalry we'd ever seen, horses, and they had single-shot muskets. Huge imbalance of power. And Germany invaded starting World War II. Balance of power is the only way in a fallen world peace is achieved. It's true for governments, also true for individuals. I was in a hospital room April 20th, 1999, watching my first child be born, celebrating the birth of new life. And as I held my daughter, I looked up on the TV and watched scenes coming out of Littleton, Colorado, same day. Two students, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, had gone into their high school and killed 20 people in a mass shooting, worst mass shooting uh, in a school we'd ever seen. Why did they go to their school? Why didn't they go to a police station? Why didn't they go to an NRA convention? Why didn't they go to a gun range? Well, it's very easy. Because in, the, in those places, people can shoot back. There's a balance of power. Those places, gun ranges, NRA conventions, police stations, they're some of the safest places in the world, aren't they? You ever heard of a mass shooting in one of those places? I haven't. No. In a school, though, or a movie theater, or a mall, people are not armed. Therefore, a person with a gun has an imbalance of power. And because we live in a Genesis 3 world, those places are targets. Gun control legislation is an attempt to balance power. It really is. They, the, the, they really are. It's, it's, if we take all the guns out of everyone's hands, then there will be peace. It's an attempt to balance power. It's a recognition of option number two. That's what it is. And, on, and it has merits on, its, uh, on, on, on the face. It's a noble proposition, and it sounds good. But let me ask the ladies in here at the risk of being politically incorrect in a world where in 2021 there are apparently are no differences between men and women. Do you feel safe walking down the street at night and you see a man following you? I have a wife and two daughters. I know the answer to that. No, you don't feel safe. There is no balance of power because people are not balanced. We have people that are strong and weak. We have people that are aggressive and non-aggressive. We have people that are big and small. We have six foot five men that weigh 250 pounds and five foot two women that weigh 100. There's no balance there, okay? However, a five foot two, 100 pound female with a firearm is perfectly balanced in power, even if the guy is six foot five and weighs 250. Power is balanced, and where power is balanced, there's peace. Last summer, America's cities were rocked with the George Floyd riots. Police chiefs informed their cities that they could not respond to everyone, that the people were on their own. They were overwhelmed with calls. They were being shot at themselves. They were being uh, attacked, and they did the best they could. 
And there are people that, are, that have told me that it's, it's not necessary to have a, a, a firearm because the, the police protection will do that. Well, last summer showed that the police can't respond to every call. In that situation, your safety is your own responsibility. I propose this and make the case that private gun ownership is a regretful acknowledgement, like I said, of the biblical worldview that we live in a fallen world where sin abounds and evil is present. In order to live in peace, power must be balanced. Where there's, pow- where there's a balance of power, there is peace, and that's what we want. So my student told me this after making this case. He said, so you think Christians should just be armed to the teeth and, 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 and what? It's a wild west again? That's what he asked. And I said, absolutely not. I said, there's a way to do this and be biblical. And I said, there are five things I want you to remember, five rules, if we're going to go with option two, try to balance power so we live in peace as God intended. And one is this. This is, these are the rules for Christian gun owners. Number one, know all laws and be thoroughly acquainted with them. Romans 13, one says this, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now this is really strange for someone like me to quote this verse. It's part of the Bible, part of God's word. I know that sounds strange to someone as, as basically kind of libertarian as I am. Uh, to, I would be against uh, the new Kentucky uh, constitutional carry law. If you know what the constitutional carry law says, you do not have to have a concealed carry license to conceal and carry. It'd be, I'm against that. And this is why. Uh, because I believe in the concealed carry class that teaches you the laws that you must live under, both the federal and state. If you're going to be a gun owner, you must know the laws. This is not the Wild West. We are civilized, peaceful people, and we live under the laws. Okay? You must know. I believe you're a gun owner. You must know the laws under which we live, and, and not to do so is foolish and irresponsible. Only a fool will carry firearm without knowing the laws, and I believe it's irresponsible and foolish. When I went through the class, interestingly enough, I went through the class, and I got my concealed carry license. As I went over to the sheriff's department to pick it up, I wanted to know firsthand what law enforcement thought of these. What law enforcement, the people that, that deal with this every day. And I walked up there, the deputy sheriff sitting behind was an older guy. I mean, it's like the stereotypical deputy. He had a, he had a gut, a mustache, he was weathered. He looked kind of old and gruff deputy. Probably been on the force for decades. And so I asked him, I asked him about concealed carry licenses. I asked him what he thought of them. I asked, is someone in law enforcement, do you like these? Is this something that is forced on you by bureaucrats in Frankfurt, or is this something that you fully support? I want to know from you. And he looked at me and said this, the second I hand this to you, Mr. Kibler, is the last time I'll ever see you. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, I won't see you at a crime scene. I won't see you in court. Every person I hand these things to is one less person I'll ever have to deal with, ever. He said, traffic stops are some of the most dangerous situations we as deputies will ever be in. When I pull someone over who has a concealed carry license that comes up on the screen, I relax. Here's somebody that passed a background check. He goes, if I could hand these things out all day long, I would. I make sure all my family has been through these classes and all of them carry. And then he said this to me. It stuck with me. He said this. Most people just don't know what's out there. 
It was, I do. That's just always stuck with me. Know all the laws. Know the laws. Go through the class. Be responsible. Second thing is this. Train constantly in the use of your firearm. Psalm 18, 32 through 34 says, It is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He causes me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. The Bible constantly talks about the importance of training and being prepared right, in everything, including battle, including self-defense. When I became a gun owner for the first time, I realized very quickly there's a lot to it. And I, I'm a huge proponent of being prepared ever since I was a Cub Scout, and the motto was be prepared. Christian gun owner must be thoroughly practiced. Like Psalm 18 says, he must be able to handle it, he or she, without thinking. I went to the range and practiced constantly, you guys. Not only to be able to hit what I aimed at, but to be able to, uh, to, to practice three rules of gun safety. Every gun's loaded, even if it isn't. Never point anything you don't want to shoot, finger off the trigger to your quad your target. By practicing those things, you eliminate accidents. All right? You have no business owning or carrying a firearm if you don't practice, if you're not thoroughly acquainted with it. That's irresponsible, and you're a danger to people, which is against our Christian faith. You should not be a danger to people. All right? Accidents happen when people aren't trained. When they don't have a muscle memory, when they don't have constant gun safety, uh, that's how accidents happen. All right? So if you are going to be a Christian gun owner, you must train and practice. It's irresponsible not to. Number three, third rule is this. Never go anywhere with your firearm. You wouldn't go without your firearm. Romans 12, 18 guides us. It says this, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Live at peace with everyone. As it, much as it depends on us, Christians, we are to live at peace with everyone. You're not supposed to go looking for a fight. All right? Foolish people look, for, look at a firearm as a license to go anywhere and do anything. Foolish people do that. If you wouldn't go somewhere without your firearm, don't go there with your firearm. If you wouldn't walk down that dark alley at night without your firearm, don't walk down it with your firearm. It's not hard to understand. We don't go looking for trouble. That's against our Christian faith. Best way to avoid a fight, don't be there. Number four. Number four rule is this. Run, hide, fight. In that order. Lethal force is always the last option. Psalm 82, 3 through 4 gives us a challenge. Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. I was at my pre our previous church building back behind the uh, boot store when probably one of the most tense moments I've ever been in happened. I was there by myself on Friday. It was way back in the back of the industrial park. People did not just wander in. We didn't have walk-ins like we do here, okay? You have to actually go to our church. It was way back in the middle of, of, of nowhere, all right? Well, I heard the door open. I was in my office, and, 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 I, and I heard the door open, and I walked out to the door of my office, and in walked a lady, and she did not look right. There was something going on. Immediately, some alarm bells went off. She stopped about 10 yards away from me, and she asked if she could have some money. Needed gas money. It's always gas money. I informed her that we don't keep cash on the premises. And, and I, in fact, I didn't even have my wallet with me. It was the truth. It, my wallet was in the car outside. She got very angry and started yelling and asked what kind of, what in the H-E double hockey six kind of church it was that didn't help people. 
I think she was an addict coming down off a high and was starting to feel withdrawal symptoms because this irrational behavior was very, very, very inappropriate. Then she got this crazed look in her face. I'll never forget it. She got this incredibly, when she found out that she was not going to be getting any money. And then she did this. I'm going to imitate. This is what she did. Like she was seeing something. She went like this. And then she fixated right on me. Like stared at me. At that moment, I, had been, I, I was armed. I had, uh, I had it concealed. I lifted up my shirt to show my sidearm. I felt threatened enough to do that. She took one look at it and left. I have no doubt in my mind in that situation that had I not been armed that she would have, she would have attacked me. And people in that state of mind, you don't know what they're going to do. Did she have a knife? Did she have a gun of her own? I don't know. All I know is that, that she was acting extremely aggressive towards me and having a, a firearm saved me from a fight. Isn't that ironic that had I not been armed because my desire for peace, I would have had to fight. But because I was armed, I didn't have to. Being able to defend yourself and others in this Genesis 3 world is what God calls us to do. Lieutenant Dave Grossman, a uh, retired uh, Marine, was speaking at a prayer breakfast for first responders. And he said this, said there are three types of people in this world. See, most people are sheep. They're going about their business, kind of oblivious to the world around them. They're sheep. So there's a second type of person. They're wolves. He says, what do wolves do to sheep? They kill the sheep. They, have, they, have, they do not have the, the, the best intentions of the sheep in their minds. They kill the sheep. So they're the third type. They're the sheep dogs. What do sheep dogs do? They protect the sheep. And he said, you all in here are sheep dogs that we place our strength and our power, and our, we, instead of using our teeth and, our, and our, our, our speed and our strength to attack the sheep, we use it to defend the sheep. That's what a sheepdog does. And he said, that's what you've been called to be, to defend the powerless, to defend the, uh, the, the ones who cannot defend themselves. Soviet Union dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn was one of the millions that were carted off to the gulags under the USSR in place in their version of concentration camps. He wrote this, and I read this all the time thinking about it. He wrote this, and how we burned in the camps later, talking about he and his fellow gulag prisoners. What would things have been like if every security operative, in other words, the KGB, when they went out at night to make an arrest had been uncertain of whether or not they would return alive to their homes? Or, or if, during periods of mass arrests, for, as for example in Leningrad, when they arrested a quarter of the city, had people not simply sat there in their lairs, paling with terror at every bang on the downstairs door and at every step on the staircase, but had understood that they had nothing left to lose and had boldly set up downstairs hall an ambush of half a dozen people with axes, hammers, pokers, and whatever else was at hand. The organs, in other words, the, 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 the KGB would have very quickly suffered a shortage of officers and transport. And notwithstanding all of Stalin's thirst, the cursed machine would have ground to a halt if the people had fought. But, but unfortunately, they did not fight. 
And the machine continued because of that an estimated 50 million citizens put in gulags from 1923 to 1954 alone. That is someone who had tried running, who tried hiding, realized that he should have fought. And he said if all of Russia would have fought, the camps, the concentration camps, the machine would have ground to a halt. So run, hide, fight in that order, Christian gun owners. The fifth one is this, is yearn for God's redemption. Yearn for God's redemption. Isaiah 2.4 says this, this is the promise of God. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. That is the future that God has promised us. That is the future we yearn for. That is where we want to, want to be. And the second that God does that, we will all lay down arms and we will turn rifles into tennis rackets and we will turn knives into pruning hooks. We, we, there will be no war. There'll be no vi more violence once this happens. This is what God has promised us, and we never stop yearning for that, okay? That's, that's, that we never, ever forget. We never get comfortable with the presence of violence. We never get comfortable with that. In our elder prayer time, Bud Burdett said something very, very, very profound, and he said this. He said, are you gonna address people that worship guns? Someone who worships guns and make guns an idol. A person like that is not yearning for God's redemption. We have no place for that here. Never forget that we yearn for God's redemption where he will remove all of this from ourselves. Where he, we will no longer live in a Genesis 3 fallen world where sin abounds and evil is present. Okay? I want to invite the band, come on back up. When I was thinking about doing this message, I honestly didn't want to because I've never preached on this before. I know it's controversial. I know that people have strong opinions and that probably no opinions were changed in here today. I, I, I pray that maybe, maybe they were. But I felt the need to do this because it's going to be, it's a reality in our life, and we have to have a response for it. And as I was watching, to, to, to kind of understand the heart behind this, where I am, I take you back to the 1980s movie classic, The Karate Kid. Daniel was a target of the Cobra Kai, getting beat up every other day. And he trains under Mr. Miyagi to learn karate to defend himself. And as he progresses uh, in his training, he asked Mr. Miyagi, he said, did you ever fight when you were a kid? And Mr. Miyagi said, plenty. And, uh, and he said, Miyagi, hate fighting. And Daniel says, well, you, you like karate. And Miyagi says, so? He goes, well, karate's fighting. You train to fight. And Miyagi looks at him and says, is that what you think? And Daniel, who had been practicing his blocks and punches, goes, No. And then Miyagi said, then why train? And Daniel thinks for a second, and he, then he smiles. He goes, so I won't have to fight. And Miyagi laughed and said, Miyagi, I have hope for you. 
Why do we train? Why do we own? So we don't have to fight. Because we want to live in peace. Because the goal of the Christian life is peace. That's what we want. That is the goal. In order to do that, one of two ways, either people are very, very good and trustworthy, or two, we balance power. Balance of power is the option, I believe, for a fallen Genesis 3 world. So, I pray that we will never have to use them. I pray that we are like Daniel, that we won't have to fight. I pray all of that. I pray that we live in peace. I pray that we do. Don't go looking for any trouble. Live in peace. And pray for you, Heavenly Father. I pray that today, that as we are looking at a world that is just seems like it's going crazy, that people are buying guns right and left, um, Lord, I pray that cooler heads prevail. I pray that uh, we, we will live in a power-balanced world where there is peace. I pray for this community. I pray for our nation. I pray for the people in here. Lord, we love you, and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.